All right. All right. Are we in there? We're in. Okay. Audio sounds good. So uh, let me do a quick introduction. Okay. And and then uh, I'll edit this part out. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Get Your Shift Straight podcast with your host, David Morin. And today I have an awesome guest. Not only is he a guest, he's an incredible human being. He's one of my best buddies on the entire planet. None other than the very first IFBB Pro physique, amazing athlete, Matt Christianer. Now, just before we get started, I'm going to go over a few things about Matt. I know he's a pretty humble guy. So I kind of want to run through a lot of his accolades. So everyone, if you don't know who he is, once I jog your memory with these accomplishments, you'll probably have seen his mug somewhere. Uh, he has appeared on a number of different magazines, internationally and nationally, like Iron Man magazine. Um, he's also the very first, like I said, men's physique pro bodybuilder in the IFBB. And he's also won three consecutive IFBB shows. He's a two-time Mr. Olympia. And while he continued to inspire many and sought to, you know, take his career to the next level, he moved to Hollywood. And there was a bunch of chaos that ensued that we'll get into. But he discovered Jesus Christ when he was there. Uh, He's been on death's doorstep many times from a car accident to suicide and depression to most recently endocarditis. Um, Since his days in Hollywood, he's spent... Uh, the last few years focusing on his health as well as his family. Matt's also a long, lifelong traditional hunter and archery uh, expert and also an avid fisherman. His mission now is exposing the unimaginable truths in a world that we live in based on his supernatural experiences over the last decade and his diligent research in the field of uncovering truth in a world of deception he is an avid and true follower of Jesus Christ. Once again, Matt Krishner, everybody. How are you, Matt? I'm doing great, David. Thank you for the awesome intro, man. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You got it, man. It's, a, it's my pleasure, brother. And um, so, you know, you, you and I, we can have so many different conversations and this can go so many different ways, but I felt like the, the best place to start would be you got some type of hypnosis performed on you or there was some kind of machine that took you back to a, a kind of critical moment in your life where you were, you were bullied as, as a younger uh, child, right? Is that correct? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We relocated. My parents relocated us from Ohio to Arizona, which was much, much different. And uh, that was my sophomore year. So I ended up getting bullied really, really bad. That's how it kind of started. Okay. And this was this a chronic situation where it was just like, oh, shit, like I'm going to turn left when I have to go right to get to my class. Or it was just like every day after school, like what exactly happened? It was way worse than that. I I mean, it was I feared for my life on a daily basis. So, I mean, it started with like I worked I worked at the time I worked at a gym when I was like 15. So I was able to save up a little bit of money. And I bought like a really nice jacked up Jeep, which made the situation way worse. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it just kind of started with, uh, you know, I was from Ohio, so I dressed kind of different. I dressed, I guess what you call preppy back then, you know, 
Abercrombie and Fitch was like the big thing back in Ohio in those days. So it just right from the get go, I was very, I was very small too. I was about 115 when I moved there. <laughs> okay. And I just, it was like, it started with flat tires. I had four flat tires, like in the first or second semester. Um, and then I had somebody put chocolate on my seats. Of course I'm in Arizona. So it like melted all over my seat, started mm. with that. And then it went to physical violence where one night I got hit in the back of the head with a, a beer bottle. And then I hit, I hit a rock and just bleeding everywhere. I had another one where a guy sucker punched me, tapped me on the shoulder, sucker punched me at school, busted me wide open. You know, I had to go get my face glued and stapled back together and all that. And it just kept escalating and escalating all the way until the point where, you know, I had guys waiting with baseball bats for me to come out the back door at work and Whoa. trying to, and trying to run me off the road. So it really was, traumatizing because I just didn't have anybody there and the school wasn't doing anything. The guy was a small town. So the cops, you know, they were kind of in with the football coaches and with the principal. So it was literally, I just felt all alone and just had no help <laughs> at all defending mm. myself. Were, were you in a position where you, you were kind of standing your ground or was it just always just like, God, these guys are just going to punk me down again and I just need to take it and fucking deal with it. It was just kind of a gradual, you know, it just it started at one point and it just went to an extreme. So that's how my reaction kind of was. At first, I was just kind of like, hey, I'm the new guy and, you know, you're messing with my, my property, my Jeep and hey, that's not cool. But then it just kept escalating and escalating. And there were just so many guys that, that hated me. And that was a, the whole reason I was trying to figure out the whole time. Why do these guys hate me so much? Because in Ohio, I hung out with all these type of guys. But out mm -hmm. here, they absolutely hate me. And it basically got to the point to where, yeah, I finally, it kind of, you know, I, I was involved in the car accident, too, while I was in high school, while all this was going on. Mm -hmm. and, that ne and that never really stopped. Um, but I do remember, just like something out of a movie, my senior year, um, I had reached my breaking point and I'll, long story short, like I said, just like a movie, got the whole circle of people out in the parking lot, you know, and I just lost, I just was like, fine, you want to go? Like I, I'm, I've had it, you know, and I just, I stepped out of my Jeep up to this guy and, you know, I was probably five, six, one, well, my senior year is probably five, eight, you know, one, one forty, maybe something like that. And I stepped up to this guy that was a grown man. He was like six, two, two twenty five, the star quarterback. And, I just said, let's go, bro. I'm done with this. Like, I didn't care if I got my ass beaks already had a million times. I was just like, I'm done with this. And then wouldn't you believe it? <laughs> That's where it ended because he did not want to fight me. And I was just like, yo, like, then you just need to shut your mouth, you know, along those lines and stuff like that. But that's kind of where it finally ended. And that was right at the end of my senior year. So you're talking when you moved from Ohio to Arizona, you said, right? Right. Uh, what year did you, what year of high school? Uh, this was back in 99. So I, it was coming into my sophomore year. Okay. So, so sophomore, junior and senior year for three years, uh, probably the most important socialization time in your life when you're like meeting girls and trying to have right. friends, right. these, these guys just had this, cons this vendetta against this outsider who is probably like a lot of the girls were talking about because, you know, you're a handsome guy. So they were probably like, Oh, this guy, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, some of the guys weren't very smart, so they would, they would like rile up. Like it was a lot of the football team and stuff like that, but they would get certain guys that had half a brain all riled up 
and just tell them all this stuff. And then those were the guys that would come and, and, and beat me down or whatever. But it was such a, a difference from Ohio because in Ohio, I had three older sisters. They were all prom queens and homecoming queens. And my freshman year, I had it made. I knew all the teachers. I had friends that were seniors. Like, and it was just such a just overnight change to being like, you know, having fun as a teenager and just like not worrying about those types of things. And I was thinking about, well, what college will I go to, you know, and back in Ohio. And then when I came out here, it was just like, man, it was twilight zone. And the last thing I thought about was my education and like, what, what college am I going to go to? It was literally, I didn't think I was going to make it through high school. So, so at that point too, I can imagine like most of us who were in high school um, you know, even without the trauma that you were going through with bullying, but we started drinking, right? Right. Right. And then, and then that maybe did that kind of precipitate this car accident you were talking about? Well, I mean, the car accident, I'll just get into the car accident. The car accident, we were actually headed down from Payson to Phoenix, uh, for a party. Yeah. <laughs> but none of us were, we had a whole bag in this book bag full of full of beer and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And, we nobody was drinking while we were driving or anything like that. We were in an old Chevy pickup and it didn't have a tailgate. That was the thing. It had no tailgate. So we had all of our bags, our duffel bags in the back of this truck and us being young and, you know, not knowing better. We just kept looking back to make sure our bags were there, you know, and they never even moved, you know, but we kept looking back to see if they were still there. And we all three looked back together at the bags. And then the next second we looked forward, uh, the driver my buddy at the time was on the guardrail and the cops estimated our speed between 75 and 85 and he overcorrected and we hit a three foot rock that basically launched us and we rolled the truck three and a half times. Mm. The driver and the passenger, it was a bench seat. I was in the middle. They both had seatbelts on. Um, so, you know, by miracle, they really, I think Tony had a broken nose hit on the steering wheel and my other buddy, Blake, his ankles were all swollen and stuff like that. But I didn't have a seatbelt on. So I literally just bounced around like a BB in a tin can. Mm. And I can still remember to this day, my knee, my knee just caved in the whole dash. And that's where most of the trauma to my hip, uh, you know, originated from. And they, I couldn't even get out of the truck. I was, they, it zipped my head wide open on the top. I had a big zipper <laughs> right on the top of my skull. So I had blood all over my eyes. I couldn't see. I couldn't get out of the truck. They dragged me out of the truck. And, um, they, they landed a helicopter right in the middle of the road and got me to, uh, down to Scottsdale Osborne. They said, you know, you only have so much time before you bleed out inside and all that kind of stuff. So and my life was on the line, but they saved my life and they ended up saving my leg. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty so, much what so, happened there. So where, where in this did Matt Kushner say, okay, I'm going to start working out. So I, I had this, well, I started working out when I was getting bullied because my neighbor, when I first moved to Payson, my neighbor at the time was like 32 years old and just jacked. I mean, just shredded. Right. And I was just like, man, I, I you know, I want to look like that, you know, and he got me a job at the gym. So I started working there, uh, you know, and, um, after that's how I got into the gym and, you know, I started training just to get big so I could stop getting bullied. Right. But I remember the moment I had when we had the accident and I'm in the hospital and I'm in there like a week or two weeks or whatever. I was in there and had a catheter. And I mean, it, I was a mess. And I remember I finally was able to get up. Right. 
And this is two years after I started lifting. And I remember this moment when I looked in the mirror and I, I saw my body and I thought it almost brought tears to my eyes. Then it almost brings tears to my eyes now. And I just remember looking in the mirror and seeing my chest and my arms and, and just thinking, you know what, look how far I've come in two years. I'm not going to stop. Like, I, I'm like, that's where I really, it was just like a real calling to me where I was like, wow, look what, you know, there were no other distractions. It was like, I'm happy to be alive. And wow, look what I've done in two years to, to my body, just from working out, just from the discipline, just from eating right, you know, um, it just amazed me. And yeah. I knew that I wanted to take it further. I just had a very long road of recovery, especially to bring my wheels up, to bring my legs up to par with the rest of my upper body. It took took nine years to get my legs to match my upper body after that accident. Because I did I spent time in a wheelchair and I'd wheel my I'd wheel my little butt in the gym and I had a lot of friends in the gym that were older guys that would rack everything, unrack everything that were you know, just incredible to help me continue. I just never stopped, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, so in this journey and you realizing, wow, like the amount of result from this self-control, it, I bet you it just felt like a drug. Like, the, like this was your only way out of this. I'm in this new town. I had it made in my other town. Everybody knew me. It was kind of like on easy street. And then all of a sudden I'm in no man's land. And not only that, like I'm, I'm, being disrespected in the most, I guess, the worst way a young man could be. And then, of course, the accident, and you're like, okay, this is my lifeline out of this situation. I got to figure out a way to be the strongest man I can be. So when when you started going down this road, what which came first? Was it like the bodybuilding or was it like uh, modeling or did they both come together? It Well, it was um, – so – I graduated and then I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to a semester of community college where I decided I'm just going to drop out. And I, the, the thing to me was when I went to MCC out here, our English teacher couldn't speak English. And that's where I thought I just sat there and I was thinking, well, Matt, what the hell are you doing sitting here doing this? You already know what you want to do. And I knew that I wanted to be into fitness. I knew that I wanted at that point, you know, chase, chasing the big dreams already. I was like, I want a cover, you know, mm. I want to, I want to be on a cover of a magazine. And, um, I ended up moving down to Florida and I got certified. Uh, I lived there for maybe six months. They had a really great program called MPTI and down in Florida. And it, now it's all over every state, I think has an MPTI, but this one was the only one that had housing. So they put me with like 50 other people that were going to the school. And that's where, you know, it, it really, that was my first real thing where it's like, okay, I'm going to get certified as a trainer and I'm going to get in really good shape. And, you know, I knew I wanted to be on in magazines and stuff like that, but it was years before any of that happened, you know? Mm. Okay. So you competed in your first bodybuilding show first? Yeah, it was, okay. I think it was 2009. Um, I had competed in my first bodybuilding show. And I remember just total bro science back then. You know, I would just ate chicken and chicken and broccoli and tuna and peas basically for 12, <laughs> 12 weeks. And I just came in um, and I won. I 
I won my class. I, I won the novice. I won the open for my class. And then I made it. I'll never forget it. I made it all the way to the overall. And I went against uh, a, a very well-known bodybuilder here in Phoenix. He was a light heavyweight. And it came down to me and him. And it was just uh, a night I'll never, ever forget, you know. But be, before that, uh, a couple of years before that, I had, I'd, you know, I was lifting and lifting and all that kind of stuff. And I ran into a guy that had just done a show. He came in the locker room, this guy. And he, you could tell he was all super tan, you know? And I was like, mm. did you do a show? And he's like, yeah. And he introduced himself to me and we ended up having lunch and we ended up starting to train together. And he showed me all of his modeling work. And he said, hey, you know, you've got a great physique. I'll introduce you to this photographer, but you know, I don't know if anything's going to come of it. And um, I went ahead and I met that photographer. We had lunch and we hit it off and we did some shots and the guy was amazing. And I, I just remember looking at those shots thinking, that's me. Like, that's me. Mm. How did I, how did I do that? That's how did I do that? You know? Um, and that kind of got me, you know, started in the fitness modeling, um, and then, yeah, I did the bodybuilding show and I ended up winning the bodybuilding show. And it wasn't just a win for me. It was a win for my whole family because my family didn't, they didn't really understand the whole fitness thing at the time. They didn't really understand competing. They didn't understand shows. I mean, they literally had no idea going to the show what it was going to be like. They didn't know if I was going to be like on stage lifting weights. Like they literally mm. had no idea what it was going to be. And I remember after I won that show, my dad came to me and he said, you know, Matt, I think you can really do this. I think you can go all the way. Mm. And man, just having my dad say that, that support, you know, cause it wasn't, I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to do a normal nine to five. You know, my, my dreams were big and, and wild, you know, and uh, him telling me that it was like, all right, baby, here we go. <laughs> What's mm -hmm. next? You know? And I, uh, after that, I ended up doing the USA's. I did the USA's as a middleweight and I got, absolutely crushed and for people that don't know that's a show where you go to turn pro right and i got crushed i so was the, like the best of the best are there from the country that are the top yeah. amateurs right yes exactly and i it was funny because it's the only time i've been the tallest guy standing in line <laughs> so in my middleweight class most of the guys were much older than me and they were all like five foot three five foot four so i'm standing up there like shack man you know that's what i felt like and i look so skinny compared to them uh, I ended up not placing. I was absolutely devastated because I had lived like a hobbit for an entire year to get ready for that show. I had put on like 20 pounds, you know, and I just was crushed. But that's where the big crossroads for me was, was at that show, crying my butt off at two in the morning at Denny's in Vegas. Right? Like I worked so hard. How could nothing happen? But what happened was two things. I had two handfuls of business cards from photographers and mm. sponsors and everybody telling me, it doesn't matter where you place, you're marketable. That's all that matters, Matt. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was still kind of butthurt. But also what happened is I'm backstage for two days. It's a two day show. And I'm backstage for two days with these guys that are in my class that are older than me, right? And as the first day, everybody just mean mugs, everybody, nobody says a word. The second day after the prejudging was done, guys start talking, right? And everybody's backstage and they're just talking about basically their juice consumption. You know, I spent 90 grand on gear this year. I'm like, okay. 
I, I put an inch on my arms. I mean, I, I lost my wife and my kids. I don't get to see them anymore, but I put an inch on my arms. Right? God, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm sitting there having like hot flashes because I'm thinking, what am I doing? I don't want to be, I don't want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like that guy. What, what's going on here? And it was that show where I decided, this is even before Men's Physique even came out. I decided, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to do what they tell me because the judges told me then, Matt, you have the genetics and you have everything you need to turn pro at this, but you need to get up to like 230, 240. And I'm thinking, man, I'm a, I think I was what for that class, 176. (laughs) Jesus. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to destroy my body. Uh, My frame is small. I have a small frame. Like I'm not going to, I'm never going to carry that weight healthfully it's never going to happen and then i heard all these horror stories you know and it was just that that show the next day i had my first real shoot that was published which was for reps magazine if you remember reps magazine back in yep. the day yeah and robert reef right robert, robert reef and i remember um being at that photo shoot and i remember thinking well the guy who took first isn't here the guy who took second or third or fourth or fifth they're not here right but i but i'm here and it was from that point, um, like I said, before Men's Physique came out, that I decided I'm going to be like Frank Zane. That was always my guy that I looked up to. I could identify with his, with his body type and his frame. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the best middleweight anyone's ever seen, and I'm going to be marketable. That yeah. was my plan. Frank Zane was like the only overall uh, Olympia winner that was under 200 pounds, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. And he was well under 200 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he's just cut to ribbons. You know, and when we talk about like fitness modeling, you know, we both had our fair share of booking jobs. And I hate to use the word fitness model. I always, right. it's so limiting and it's so it cheap. It's cheesy. To me, you're an, an ambassador for human potential. You know, it's like, right, this is how I see myself. It's like you want to inspire someone else so that they can strive for their maximum potential. And you have to be able to deliver that in a photo or in a, right. in a quick right. spread or something. So, okay, so that's interesting. Now we're all the way up to the point where like you, you know, you're booking gigs, you're doing magazines, you get an agent. So like at what point did you say, okay, I'm going to move to Hollywood? Well, I remember I'd moved around a lot here in Arizona. I mean, I lived in Scottsdale, North Scottsdale, Tempe, Chandler, Mesa, East Mesa, you name it, Gilbert. <laughs> I moved around a lot and things were going well. And I had, I had multiple sponsors already at the time, but I just remember having a moment at my buddies, I was staying with a buddy and I just thought, you know what? If I got to move one more time, I'm moving to Hollywood. And I picked up the phone and I called uh, this guy, Shaka, that I met one time at a show (laughs) or a fit expo. And I was like, hey, man, I know you live out there. And me and him hit it off. And I was like, you know, could could I come stay with you? And he's like, for 500 bucks, you can have the couch. It wasn't uh, it was within that week. I packed my two seater with everything I owned, which wasn't much. And I moved out there and I started sleeping on his couch. And that's kind of up to North Hollywood, originally up to North Hollywood. And then later on, a year later, I moved to West Hollywood. But that's kind of how it all started as far as me getting there. I just thought at the time, I think I was 27 or 28. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, if I don't do this now, 
I'm going to regret it the, the rest of my life. And I don't want to live my life with regrets. So what have I got to lose? Just let's just go out there and sleep on a couch and just make it happen. Right. Yeah. What a, what a big risk. Like, you know, most people are afraid to, you know, you grow up in your small town and you think about all these prom Kings and prom Queens and they all just go to Hollywood for their big dreams and they work a part-time job so they can go to these castings. Right. It's like, there's not enough bandwidth to support all of these people's dreams of making it in Hollywood. Right. No, it's very competitive. It's very, obviously very competitive and people are willing to do anything (laughs) to get, to get that spot, you know? Yeah. So you found yourself like kind of bumping against that. Do, will you do anything? Right. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what really, uh, put the nail in the coffin i would say uh with the competing um that's kind of what put the nail in the coffin uh you know i got long story there's a couple stories that go into this but i was i had won i think i had already won i already turned pro and i won the first pro show they had i won that was up in sacramento and i had won i think another pro show so it's my third pro win is when this happened but I came back from prejudging. My whole family came out to California. We went to lunch and I came back from prejudging. And the promoter of one of the big shows in Southern California and the head judge, they, they pulled me aside and they pulled me in a private room. And they were livid with me. And I, I couldn't really figure out why. I was like, why, why are they so pissed at me, you know? And while I was in Hollywood, uh, another Christian brother, James Ellis, had reached out to me and he said, hey, I want to do a DVD series, you know, will you, will you be, will you do this with me? And there was actually no money involved at all. I just, I just did it for him. And he put me on the cover of the DVD IFBB pro champion, Matt Christianer. So I never really thought twice about it. And they pulled me in that room and they were like, what are you doing? We saw you on this DVD. And I'm, I'm like, well, and, and it was simply because at the time, James Ellis was the WBFF world. <laughs> you know, he had won the whole thing right. the year before. And they were just so livid that I had, you know, worked with someone that wasn't in the IFBB, which was an eye-opening thing to me. Because like I said, it, he's my Christian brother. There was no money involved. We just did it. And um you know, but they told me there on the spot in that room, they said, Matt, you're going to win today because no one's even close to you, but this will be the last show you ever win. And I did many, 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 many shows after that. And not only did I never win another show, I never placed in another show. Hmm. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even make the top 15 in a show after that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's something we should get into real quick and how, yeah how the dark underbelly of, and a lot of people that are coming up in the fitness game, you guys are listening, you girls, you bikini competitors that are listening. Like if you don't know, now you're going to know there is a dark underbelly to the IFBB. It is a definite, it is turned into less of a sport based on the merits of your efforts and being judged by that. And more about the politics. It's a cash cow you know, yeah. division with physique and with bikini, just making all this money. You got to pay for your pro card every year. It's the only sport that you pay the organization. And as a professional, you don't make any kind of salary. Right. So um, plus it's the black market for 
steroids, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh... it, th- there's so many people that get into this and they go, look, I just want to look great. And then someone says, well, you know, let me coach you. Okay. And then, right. and then, and then when they, Oh, well, I like, you know, you're not getting the results. So we just take this pill and then, okay, well that's not working. Let's just get you on some gear and then boom, right. boom, 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 you know, yeah. and it, people aren't doing their blood work. People don't know what the, what the hell they're doing. Right. And people, right. people, as we've seen in the past two years, you've seen several, well, you had a Mr. Olympia, Sean Roden die. Yes. Yeah. You know, yep. you've had, yep. you've had, you know, who, who was the red con athlete? There are a couple red con top yeah have all died. yes yeah you know it's yep it's it is something that is the elephant in the room it's something yep. that the ifbb does not want to take responsibility for but it's something that every competitor and anybody who's in fitness who has dreams of competing has to listen to someone like yourself so that they can understand the truth of what they're getting to, into before they get in over their head and it's too late Right. I mean, I don't even know where to start with this. I mean, we could talk about this for a day straight. The, the dark, like you're saying, it's, it's a dark, it, it can be a very, very dark industry, a very dark underbelly, like you said, and very corrupt, very, just like everything else <laughs> in this world. Yeah. It's extremely corrupt. And you're also talking about, you know, whether you want to call it a sport or an art or whatever it is. It's subjective. The judging is subjective. It's not like me and me and you, David, we go on a track and we run a hundred meters and it's like, okay, David won. He beat me. He crossed the line first. Right. You can't go back later and say, well, his form wasn't good. Matt really won. Right. It's not subjective, but with this sport, uh, if you call it that it's a subjective sport. So, I mean, I'll start with first, you know, there was a head judge here in Phoenix years ago and I had to talk with him and he said, Matt, we don't, we don't go by the judging criteria for bikini girls. We just pick whoever we want up the most. Right. And I'm wow. like, uh, uh, okay. Uh, I mean, I was even naive back then, man. You know, I was like, wait, what? You know, I went, I went to the USA's in Vegas one year and I literally saw one of the head judges hand out his room key to girls. And these young, naive bikini girls, would, he would go up to them literally in front of everybody. There's people everywhere when you're checking in. And he would just say, you want to turn pro this weekend? And they would just look up and, yeah, you know, here's my room key. Here's when you need to be here. And, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's wow. just the tip of the just, iceberg. That's just putting the tip in, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's just the tip right there. I mean, it's, it's very, like I said, I, and also when I was competing, you know, I was training out of a small studio and we had, you know, I was training competitors too and stuff like that, but at a, a, a more of a local and national level. And uh, uh, the guy who owned the gym, like I would report, I would do these shows by myself and I'd report back to him. And I went, when I mean by myself, I mean, I would do everything by myself. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a trainer. It's what I did. I did all that, you know, mm. and everybody started these teams that this is way back then when the team things were just starting. And I thought, I don't want to start a team and I don't want to be on a team. This is not about a team effort here. This is about you, yourself, competing against yourself, the discipline that it takes with the food and the monotony of it, uh, at least back then with bro science and the cardio and the training and, 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 and just the, the, the will, man, just the iron will to better yourself show to show. And I would go do these shows and I would report back to him and it was just, it just gets sadder and sadder. Every time I came back to report, because what happened was at that time, these coaches started taking off certain coaches 
and they'd have all these athletes on their team. Well, these athletes are paying a lot of money every month for literally a cookie cutter diet. Okay. So they're not paying for the training. They're not paying for the coaching. They're paying for the placement because that coach would then deliver money to certain persons and then they would win the show. And I mean, it, 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 at, towards the end of me competing, I, they didn't even try to hide it anymore. They, the judges wouldn't even turn in their scorecards. You would just have um, the, the coach, you know, and then the promoter, and then the promoter would hand a piece of paper to the MC. <laughs> so it didn't even, they just had judges there basically just for, for show. You know, right, right. Um, it, it, it just got, it was just, and not only that, I'll even go a bit further here. Um, you know, the president of the IFBB, you know, he's been doing this for 40 years. Okay. So he's a, he's a, he's an elderly gentleman at this point. Well, he has a son and his son happens to own a photography and management company. So if you're signed to that, that's why I noticed back then I was like, why are all these specific people always winning? Even if you see other athletes that are better on stage, well, that's because they were literally with the president's son of the entire IFBB. Mm. And there were certain guys that got signed. And I decided I didn't want to be signed back then because I knew that they were, you know, trick a lot of times tricking these girls. They would take them, you know, all these shows were at big hotels and stuff like that. And they would take these girls up in the hotels. And they would get them to do more and more and more, if you know what I mean. And then they would use that content for other websites that they run that are basically software. Mm, there you go. So and, it was, a, uh, it was a opportunity to collect smut and monetize right. these well-conditioned, beautiful girls. Right. And at the same time, uh, incentivize their cooperation in return for turning them pro. Right. I mean, you're basically selling your soul for a plastic trophy. Got it. Um, and I just, I didn't want to, I just, I knew I didn't want to be any part of that. It's just too dark for me, even though, uh, you know, I don't, they didn't ask me to shoot and do anything like that ever. I'm a guy, but you know, uh, I just, I was like, man, that's just so dark and nasty. And, you know, I know, I know three guys very well to this day that signed with them. And those are the guys that have a few million followers and they're doing, they're doing quite well in certain areas. But I just remember saying to people, you know what? I sleep really good at night. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so that's, so you qualified for the Olympia twice. And I remember right. you, that's the, that's the pinnacle in the sport. I mean, that's like right. the top level. And so you, you made it to the top. You were competing yeah. with the top of the best of the best from around yeah. the world. So if there's anybody qualified to talk about the reality of what you just discussed, it would be you. And it's right. such, such a surprise when, you get, when you're rubbing elbows with the best of the best and you realize, hey, it's not even about the best being the best. It's, no. it's about all these other variables that had nothing to do with the fact that you're at the gym doing cardio at right. uh, one, one o'clock in the morning and, right. you're, and right. you don't have a social life and well, you don't have a girlfriend and you're on, you have to take, you know, certain supplements that compromise you. You got to do all this extra stuff. So right. when, when you and I met, we were both cast in the, in the documentary, the docudrama, the perfect docudrama. physique. And I, I met you out front of the Las Vegas athletic club. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And that's when we both kind of said, hey, like we're both believers. We both believe in Jesus Christ. And we right. both kind of saw we were like 
and I was the same way, you know, I would walk through like the Olympia convention hall and stuff where the exhibitors and stuff and all these meatheads walking around like, man, this is just a convention for assholes. It, yeah, was, <laughs> it, it really is. And, you know, I just I just want to touch on one more thing, because I think this will sure. really blow, blow people's minds here. You know, when I was competing for the first Olympias, I was still dealing with all these hip problems. Right. Yeah. Right. I went I went to a doctor six weeks. And like you said. The Olympia is the Super Bowl for us. I mean, I remember being 15, reading Arnold's Encyclopedia, being like, I'm going to be in the Olympia someday. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I'm you six are. weeks I'm six weeks out from the Olympia. That's crazy, right? And I remember, you know, my hip was so bad. I went to three different doctors and they all told me, you're not going to be able to compete and you need to get a hip replacement. You need to get this fixed. I remember the, specifically the, the older doctor I had, he looked like Santa. And he said to me, he goes, you see this, son? I said, yeah. He goes, you got a blizzard in your hip. And I'm like, a blizzard? And he's like, that's all arthritis. And I was like, that's why my hip hurts so bad. It's arthritis. I never connected the two because I was so young. Mm. And, you know, I just remember training for that first Olympia thinking in tears. Every day I was in tears because I'm not even supposed to be training. And it was like a knife in my in my hip every step on that stair climber right and i just remember thinking man there's guys that don't have injuries and they're just breezing through their cardio so i gotta i gotta be tough man i gotta push it you know and i'll never forget i was on the leg press in west hollywood in la fitness when i got a phone call three weeks out from the olympia and they told me who was going to win the olympia so i knew i knew three weeks out that no matter what I did, even if I came in at 0% body fat and I peeled the skin off my body like in Predator, <laughs> I can't win. They already picked who's going to win that first Olympia. It was pre-decided way in advance. And I remember just being so disappointed, you know, because I still had that uh, thought inside me that, no, man, you just – you got to be the best. If you're the best, if, if no one's even close to you, if you're the best, you right. can still win. Well, if you go in absolutely peeled, they'll just start and you're not supposed to win. And some other, somebody else that has a different sponsor, sponsors play a big part in this too, on who wins and who's with, and who's coaching who, you know, it was just very disappointing to know ahead of time who was going to win. And that's when it really set in like, man, this is just not, what I thought, but you're in the, you're in the midst of it. You've got all, you got, you know, I've been training at that point since I was 15. So you've got almost two decades already or over right. a decade wrapped in it. And uh, I just remember being so disappointed uh, in everything and just like, wow, like I'm going to go do the show and we already know who's going to win and that's who won the show. Yeah. So, so then, so then there we were, we were kind of like the reality set in because this was we did a photo shoot with the winner of that Olympia, which was Jerry Jeremy Buendia. Well, this and, was the year before. Okay, okay. So this was Mark Anthony. But Mark yeah. Anthony. Okay. Yeah. So so you had, and then the following year, you competed again at the highest level, and then yeah. the res, the results again were somewhat yeah. predetermined. It, it, was, it was kind of the same thing. It was me, me, Steve Cook, and Jeremy were predicted to go one, two, and three in any order. You know, and I ended up taking, I think I took 13th. I think Steve took like maybe seventh or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't in the top three. I know that much. But the, the, the guys that were signed with 
the, <laughs> the management group that basically owns the IFBB, those, those were your three top guys. Okay. And then that, that day we all got together and then we all had this great opportunity, right? We had this right. kind of like, there were these fitness guys, which I was kind of in that kind of group. I wasn't really a competitor, although I did compete a few times right. um, bef- before they were masters. You know, I was like 37, my first show was so over the right. hill, but so, um, <laughs> So then we were there and we were all, there was this buzz, you know, we were thinking, oh man, like Greg's going to be in this. We got TJ, we've right. got all these IFBB superstars. We've got Sadiq, we've got you. I mean, it's like, yeah, I got Buendia. And now, Buendia. I mean, got Buendia. And like I said before, like when we did the one, two, three at that Olympia, Buendia won that show and he should have won that show. Sure. <laughs> I just sure. wanted to put that out there. Sure. Sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 And, and dude, I've got the utmost respect for all those guys. I mean, so all the, I. all the politics aside, like right, those right. guys, those guys worked hard. There's no doubt they've worked hard to get where they are today. So that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. So no one can take that, but you know, we, we, we also don't want to deny the reality of the situation of influence that's intertwined in the business dealings of how this thing actually works. It ain't right. just, it ain't just who shows up the best. No, it's it. And, and it's not just at a national, it's not at a, it's not just at a pro level. It's at the whole pro level. It's at the whole national level mm. and it's at the local level. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you, you, there's alliances and there's, uh, there's backdoor deals. There's, there's patent pockets and there's just a good old boy network. But so right. that did, so that day here we are in Las Vegas, you just competed you place 13th, you know, you're, you're there. I'm there. We're all hanging out. We're shooting. we got this great opportunity. There's this documentary, you know, high hopes, right? We had high hopes. Mm-hmm. Dave, Dave Kimberly and Greg bless, you know, their souls, both of them passed away. They were involved in the project. And then we were like, okay, this is going to be the big deal. The first of its kind. We got right. all these superstars here, right? We got Colin Wayne, who's right. like the social, social media guru, Right. You know, he, he's going to be the guy that's going to basically monetize and be able to come up with strategies to market the film to make it successful. And then right. you had Candace King, who was like, right. had all the accolades, had all the experience in Hollywood, had worked with, you know, Academy Award winning directors and actors before. We thought, wow, this is going to be great. Right. And then, then, you know, we all, you and I connected and we discussed, you know, us being Christian. Then you went back to LA. Then we shot, right. we shot the film, we wrapped the film, which was fun. And then when did everything start? Like, when did everything from the wrap of the film and then you calling me and going, David, like, I, uh, if yeah. I don't get out of Hollywood, I don't yeah. know what I'm going to do to myself. Yeah, it was a very, it, it turned into a very dark time for me because even though, you know, on the outside looking in, everybody could be like, man, you were in Olympia and I had amazing sponsors. So even though I didn't place that well at the Olympia, I had all these shoots after the Olympia and I'm shooting with the biggest and the best photographers with the biggest and the best athletes, you know? So, uh, but, you know, getting back to what I was saying, it was like, it was like, I wasn't fulfilled inside, you know, it was just like, I had worked hard and I had done covers and had all these things, like you said, accolades and all that going on. But I just felt so empty and Hollywood is a very dark place. It's just, it's, it reminds me the same at Las Vegas and LA are the same to me in the fact that when I'm driving, when you start to get close to that city, you can feel the dark 
energy. You can mm. feel it. And it was uh, so simple to me. It was like, there's so much sinning going on. There's so much selling of souls going on in those two places. Mm. There was just dark, you know, and it was just starting to wear on me. Hollywood was really starting to wear on me. Um, just the way a lot of people were there. Everything, dude, the way you got to live. Um, the, you know, I had no parking spot. I mean, just tickets. I mean, it was just, it was getting to a point where I was like, okay, I've done, you know, I think all I can do at this point and, and certain, like I said, with the competing, those doors where I could see were shutting because I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell out. I wouldn't cave in to the, to the, to the puppet masters of the industry. <laughs> and then, and then you had your hip kind of lagging. Yeah. And then, and, oh, you. Of course. I mean, that was a problem. I'm glad you said that. Cause that was probably one of the biggest things was I'm always in pain. I'm always in pain. I'm always, you know, trying to overcome this hip thing. And it just reached a point, you know, where, I, I don't remember if I called you or you called me, but I do remember standing in the kitchen, in my kitchen in West Hollywood. And I remember you just saying to me, man, you don't, you don't sound good, man. You don't sound right. Like, like I was kind of scaring you a little bit, you know, and I was already, I went so far down so fast mentally, you know, to where I was becoming suicidal again. You know, I was, you know, like I always say, it's like that warm blanket that comes over you. You know, mm -hmm. and you and you get these delusions of, well, everything will be better if I'm not here, you know, and it'll be better for this person or that person, or it'll just be easier if I'm not here. You you delusionally get yourself into that train of thought. And then it's like a warm blanket that just kind of overtakes you. And, you know, if it wasn't honestly, Dave, if it wasn't for you at that time, really reaching out to me and saying, hey, I'm going to fly you out here and this is the ticket. And here's this, because I was so shot mentally that looking back, I mean, I had trouble just getting to the airport, you know, I was mm. just such in a, in a mental fog where I was just numb and I didn't care about anything. And I was like, this is it. I don't care if I live or die anymore. I've done all I need to do. And you know, that, that, mm. that train of thought, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been there myself, dude. It's, uh, you can convince yourself of of anything once you've fallen down really hard and you're you're really questioning like you're questioning God, you're questioning your reason for being, what your purpose right. is in life. Did 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 were all my choices like like you know, you you were bullied and your reaction to being that trauma, you wanted to be the best, most, you know, strongest version of yourself. Right. And and you know, that led you um, you know, to this point of kind of point right. break where your hip is like, man, this yeah. car accident that happened to me and this right. bullying, like all this, all this stuff, like I've got, I'm facing myself now because I can't rely on the thing that makes me strong anymore. Right. Cause it's all external. Yes. It's all external. None of it was internal. If it was internal, I wouldn't have mentally just fallen down so hard, you know? So it was just like so much external bullshit that really don't matter looking back, you know? But at the time, that was my life, man. That was my my sponsors. I mean, you go, you don't want to go tell your sponsors that are paying all your bills. Oh, by the way, I I can't barely walk, and I need a hip replacement. You know, I I kept that a secret for so long, as long as I could. You mm -hmm. know, and then when I let the cat out of the bag, it really showed me who was who. Uh, right. As far as far as owners of uh of the of the sponsors and the owners of the businesses, because I had. A couple sponsors that were just like, hey, Matt, we love you, man. We don't care. Do a few videos for us when you're on your crutches and we'll call it good, you know. And I kept them the whole time until years later 
Whereas other sponsors were like, yo, peace. We got a, no, we got a new guy that's young. <laughs> you right. Know? Doesn't have all these problems. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can understand both ways, right? It's a doggy dog world. I mean, it some is. people you're, some people you're fortunate enough to create relationships with where, you know, the fitness journey is really about overcoming adversity and adapting to pain, like strength. For me, the definition of strength and Phil Darieu, who is the MMA trainer of champions, he, he's the head strength conditioning coach for Dustin Poirier. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he, his big thing is strength is management of pain. And right. like you as a, as a man in your life have endured so much pain that I, I, I can confidently say you're one of the strongest, mentally strongest people that I know. And it hasn't always been that way because there's been moments where you've doubted that because things have been taken from you. And right. dude, when you're, when you're in front of the mirror and you're an Olympian and you're shredded to the bone and you're on the cover of Iron Man magazine and everyone's calling, you know, commenting on you, you look great, man. You're awesome. You're my inspiration. And then all of a sudden you look in the mirror and you're not that guy and you don't right. feel that way about yourself anymore. Right. The feeling right. of inadequacy and the feeling of a loser, you probably go right back to how you felt when you were bullied, you know? Yeah, I, it goes, I felt 15. Right. I felt like a child inside, you know, because I, at the time, I was just working so hard on everything external that, you know, that's why I, t- that's why I tell my clients, you know, that I had the last couple of years, I was like, you got to be working on the inside of you just as much as the outside, because the outside can be taken from you in a second, a heartbeat. You do not know what's going to happen to your health. You don't know if you're going to get in a car accident. You just don't know. And when you are living that way where, you know, you're getting all these things and, oh, man, you know, and then they start getting pulled away from you and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I guess my initial response back then was like I felt like a toddler and somebody was taking my blanket. Right. So your, your immediate reaction is to throw a tantrum, just angry. And of course, it's all ego based. Right. Um, but you're just so upset at everything, you know, all this is getting taken from me when in fact, those things were getting sucked out of my life for a reason and a purpose that I can Mm. now look back and say, ah, God was watching my back. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, so this was where there was kind of a reemergence in your understanding of how your intuitive sense as a hunter, like your dad, you know, from what you told me, like he taught you how to like, uh, you know, skin an animal and to hunt and to, and to, and to know, like there's a, there's a certain process in like with nature, you got to give something to get something. Like when you're out there, you're out there for hours. You got to give all this time and all this patience, all this effort to hopefully get the reward of, of a kill. And it's like, here you were, you're like, okay, now I'm understanding I've got to let these things go to get what, uh, what is next for me in my life. Right. And you don't want to, you don't, because, because this is how sales are, are people are sold every single day because the fear of loss is, is greater than the anticipation of gain because people have something and they think once you take that from them, then it makes them less of what they are when it never defined them in the first place. Right. And so now you're on a plane and you're heading to me and I'm, and I'm telling you, you're going to do some crazy jungle juice, right. With the shaman guy. And what, What were you thinking when you're on the plane, like flying, flying to Miami? Like we had only briefly hung out, like, like, 
you know, you, you knew me as your Christian brother. And then we, right. we did, we did the film together and we, and we right. were, we, we hung hard like during right, the film, right. we did. but so, so you're flying out to me to Miami and I'm this crazy guy who's like, yeah, dude, come on, we're going to do ayahuasca together. What's the right. deal? Let's go. What were you thinking? I remember thinking <laughs> I, I just, ha I had no fear. Um, I had no fear with it because I was in this place where I didn't care if I lived or if I died. I really didn't care at the time. It was like, okay, if I live, great. If I die, even better, pretty much at that point. And I just, you know, there was really no fear. It was just, um, you know, it was like I got down there and it was like you, I was in such a, such a dark cloud was over me. And, you know, as soon as, as soon as you picked me up from the airport and we got to talking and, you know, uh, we did, um, we, we did that photo shoot together, right? You set up that whole photo shoot for us. We did that photo shoot. And it was mm -hmm. just like, it just kind of broke my spirits in a good way. You know, it was like, wow, okay. You know, and this is great. Like I'm doing a shoot with David and man, this is, which ended up getting published later and was amazing, right? Yeah. Do you um, remember, will you remember when South Beach that we were walking along the, the boardwalk and there was a guy there with like a Bible and like a Bible shirt and he was reading verses or something. You remember that? I, you know, I don't recall that, but I, I do. I remember silly things from that. I remember eating that fish. <laughs> I remember <laughs> eating that fish with it back then. I never, I had never eaten a fish like that where it was just the whole, the whole thing. You know? Right. Right. Um, but I remember the shoot. I just remember like not realizing really until I look back now that it was like that, that cloud was like starting to lift to get me in a place where I could be open to you know the ayahuasca experience you know what i mean i didn't have that dark cloud right over me it was just kind of like okay kind of back to the real world a little bit right you know i was mm -hmm. kind of holed up there by myself in west hollywood for a little bit be in a very dark place and it's kind of like hey man the sun's out here a little bit you know and this is pretty cool and you know stuff like that and i really didn't know what to expect um i just knew that i sent i had you we had spoken about it you know and about one of the most important things about doing the ayahuasca was setting your intentions uh before you go in and uh -huh. i just remember repeating over and over you know i want to be healed i want to be healed from all these traumas because it took me years to figure out that the trauma i endured in high school is the reason why in my 20s i kind of hated myself i was kind of a self-hater you know, and mm. I got suicidal back then year, years, you know, before way year before the ayahuasca. Right. You're not um, good enough, Matt. You're not good enough, Matt. You're not right, good enough. You got to be right. better. You got to be better. Right. Right. And that all stemmed from the trauma I had endured at those key ages in high school. Mm. Um, and that's all I wanted. I was just I just wanted to be healed. I just I just want to be healed. You know, I don't want to carry this around with me anymore. You know. Yeah. So there we were. And we had a, a very cool group of people. Um, yes, we did. We actually had the late Greg Plitt that he participated in the ceremony with us one month before he was hit by a train and passed. Right. Um, we had our friend Renzo. We had Jace from Dynamitized right. Nutrition. Yeah, that was yeah. There, right. Yeah. We had quite a, quite a group of people there. And... Boy, we had an interesting night, right? We, you know, many yes, people reacted very strangely to ayahuasca. We had a young girl in the ceremony who was just, I mean, very prematurely acting as if she was having hallucinations. And right. she was scre <laughs> screaming, screaming on the floor, like, oh, God, oh, God, I love you, God, I love you, God. And, you know, like, oh, oh, maybe five minutes after she drinks the ayahuasca. Oh, yeah. It was pretty yeah. fast. Yeah. 
And, and yeah. so, but then, but then, you know, during the experience as, as the medicine started to take kind of its effect on us, I, we discussed this recently, how right. there was the presence of the collective consciousness. And it was like the shaman was aware that every single one in the room was metabolizing the active ingredients at the exact same moment. Right. So he, he knew when that altered state, when she, the spirit, which is ayahuasca, was in the room among us. And he was right. saying, yeah. So then, like, try to recap just if you can. I know it's an ineffable kind of thing. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Ayahuasca is something that's like, you know, it's uh, often spoken of, but seldom experienced, right? It's, right. It's one of those things where you, you just try your best. So give it, give it, give it a shot. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very well said, because to me, it's like a dream. When you have a dream and you wake up in the very beginning, you remember a lot of the dream. But as the day goes on, you can only retain like 10% of the dream. Right. Mm. So to me, it's kind of the same thing where, well, I'll just get to it. So I remember very early on uh, in the very beginning, him saying, you know, some, some people are going to, um, what's the proper term here I'm looking for, uh, you know, vomit, but purge, right? Right. Some of you are going to purge and some of you aren't. So I do the drink, we do the drink and I go sit back down. And I remember him saying, you know, if you feel like you have to throw up, try to hold it for like 15 minutes to really let it settle, you know? And I, gosh, I remember being like five, 10 minutes in looking at the clock and my, I just started salivating, man. I was like, Oh my God, I got to throw up so bad. So I, I held it as long as I could. And then, I mean, I started vomiting and vomiting and vomiting and it wasn't like normal vomiting it felt like stuff was being pulled out of my bones it was painful you know mm. it was painful and i just just remember like writhing around on the ground like an animal you know mm. and just pain and puking and puking and puking and then I just remember going inside i remember at one point i went inside and i was looking at my strands of dna at a microscopic level and I saw all these snakes merging with my DNA and I am freaking out. I mean, I am freaking out. I, you know, you're conscious, you're trying to understand what's going on, but you can't, you don't know what, you don't know what's up and down and in and out and your consciousness is here and it's there, you know? And I just remember fighting it and fighting it. And I was like, don't, don't let this overtake you, you know? And I fought it. It's like I never quit, but it overtook me. And as soon as those snakes merged with my DNA, like I said, at a microscopic level, I'm seeing this inside my body. This peace came over me. And immediately I'm shot like a cannon to this far out, just dark place, right? But I was, I was so at peace and I felt so calm and loved. And I felt like I was in a womb, basically. I was just mm. like, I'm, I'm home, you know? And then I'm shot to another place, you know, which we talked about where, you know, my idea of hell is there are different layers. There's different levels of hell. And where I was, I knew it wasn't the lowest level of hell. I knew there were levels that went deeper, but I remember just standing there seeing a lake of fire as far as my, I didn't even have physical eyes because I don't understand, you know, I wasn't really there. Um, but as far as my eyes could see, I'm just seeing this lake of fire with smoke coming out of it and just people being tormented 
And just like it's the gnashing of teeth. I mean, I saw all of that. I experienced it. It was so real. And, and the other thing that I learned by doing the ayahuasca was time didn't exist. I knew there was eternity. I knew where I was, mm. was hell, a, a place in hell, and that it never ended. Because all these people were here, you know, in this lake of fire, just screaming and tormented, you know. And I just knew that it was forever. And, and like, that's something that you can't wrap your head around when you come back to the, to reality. Right. Mm. It's like, how do you, there's always, you know, it's got to end at some point cause you're going to die, but it's like, you know, death of the ego. So in a lot of ways you do die, you know? And uh, I also remember the experience where I blacked out, right. I blacked out, I hit my head. And, um, you know, part about that better than I do. Cause I blacked out and hit my head. Sure. But after that, I remember waking up, I had, I had vomit everywhere. I had vomit in my ears and my hair. I didn't know what happened. And the shaman, you know, was rushing towards me and telling everybody to get back. And then he had his assistant there and, you know, he was telling me, Matt, you got to let go. You got to die. You got to surrender. You got to let go. Mm. And as soon as I did that, I just remember making a real loud noise, like a, and laying back down and then him from across the room later on across the room he's telling me telepathically by my name he's saying matt matt you know those those thoughts you get sometimes or those you know the voices or this whatever you're thinking he's like that's not coming from you that's not your true self that's not you and i, I always remember that for two reasons one it's because he's got a room full of people to keep track of and he's talking to me telepathically. Right. You know, and two, it gave me, it made me so strong inside because I thought, you know what? Those bad thoughts I get, like I had in Hollywood before I left. Right. Those weren't my thoughts. It, it, it gave me the ability to fight back and say, shut up. I'm not listen I'm not going to listen to you. That's not my true self talking to me. I know that. That 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 is a critical thing that anyone who suffers from depression or suicidal thoughts or mental health issues that if you're listening right now and you've been depressed, you're going through a breakup or some aspect of your life is out of control and you feel like you're dying, you have to understand that when you're thinking these thoughts of taking your life Mm -hmm. This is your way of telling yourself that there's a part of you that was once connected to this thing, whether it's a career or a girl or a guy or whatever it is, right. that it is dying, but it's just a piece of you. It's not you. Right. And, you're, and you're just witnessing yourself go through the basically the discarding of the energy that was once a part, so much a part of your life. Right. And it provides an opportunity for you because energy never dies, does it? It all it only changes form. Right. So so this is where the transition happened for you, right? I mean, yeah. post post post, you know, ayahuasca, I remember we had the conversation, you know, Greg was there and we all mm -hmm. got together and I remember we going us going into that room and you saying like, look, like this did not solve my problems, David. Like right. I'm in a, I'm, right. in a I'm in a worse situation, I feel, right? Right. So yeah, where, where did you go from there? Yeah. I mean, it was weird because I remember that night, you know, driving, driving back uh, to the house. I remember everybody was just like, so uh, in such a great mood and just on this incredible high of 
oh, look at the trees, they're breathing. Look at this energy. Life is amazing. And I was just sitting in the back like, man, I, I, oh, man, what, what just happened to me? And I'm different. And then we got home and I went for a walk by myself. And I, I remember, you know, Greg being who, who and how he was. He's like, I got VIP tickets to this big event. You know, we should all go. And I'm thinking, man, right no way du- I can du- go. Directly 30 minutes after doing yeah. like, like the most powerful oh. hallucinogen. Greg's like, yeah, let's go watch Snoop Dogg play live at the, you know. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking a walk by myself down the street thinking, what, were, what was going on with the snakes? And, right. you know, wh- why am I different than everybody else? I'm always going to be alone. I'm, I feel so alone. And, you know, but it, it, it just really took, you know, it just took a couple days, really. And all that, it just automatically went away on its own. Just kind of like, you know, when they handed you back your phone and you're looking at your phone like, what is this thing? You know, and I'm looking at my bag, my six pack bag in the corner. And I'm like, that's too new. It was just like, you have to put the pieces back together of, mm. you know, uh, I, I would say like who you think you are, you know, but it also gives you the ability to kind of rebuild who you want to be. Mm. And that's, that's what I tried to do. And that's what I did after it happened. But it was like, I went from such a, like, even like I said, after we did it, I was still like, Oh man, I'm different. And you know, what just happened? And there were snakes and, you know, I hate snakes and I, I blacked out nobody else blacked out and I puked all over the place. And, you know, but it was just like, it took a couple days and then, man, it was just like, literally like a miracle, honestly, man, where I got back to, I got back to Hollywood and I just felt incredible. I felt so pure and clean inside you know it's like i had no skeletons in the closet you know i gave it all to i gave it all to jesus christ i gave it all to the mother when i was when i was doing the ayahuasca and i just i just remember sitting there feeling so clean and so pure and so different and so grounded and so like this is who i am and i i also remember just having a craving for anything green any type of salad any type of vegetable that was green I wanted, and that was not my normal. I was a, I was a meat guy all the time. I love my meats, love the meats and sweets. Meats and sweets. Hey, that's me, totally, man. <laughs> meats and sweets, the candy man, right? That's um, it. But I just felt so clean and pure. And then it was like not only that, it was like the ability to manifest was just out of this world. The the ability to have even clearer visualizations and mm. to really go inside yourself and envision yourself you know with every sense doing the things that you wanted to do in the future and then them happening all within a very short amount of time um you know and i told you the story about the manifestation where i was i lived in la i was regularly smoking marijuana every day when i was there and we did the ayahuasca i came back and it was like three weeks later i'm driving my car down hollywood boulevard right there by LA fitness. And I remember having this epiphany. I remember having this thought like, wait a second, I haven't smoked marijuana in three weeks. And not only that, it never even came to my mind. Mm. And at that exact moment, I'm stopped at a red light. I'm all the way towards the left lane, like three lanes in I'm having these thoughts. I have, I had a little convertible at the time. The top was down and I'm having all these thoughts about the marijuana in this girl sitting on a park bench with this guy walks across three lanes of traffic to offer me a blunt while I'm sitting in my car stopped at the light. Mm. 
And it just blew me away. And I just looked at her and I thought, I said, thank you so much. That's really nice of you, but I I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much. And she walked away and the light changed and I went, but I was just like, what just happened? Yeah. See that? Now, <laughs> now, now that right there is what people that when they do ayahuasca or when they do a psychedelic vision quest or whatever they're going to do to like, to like a, unify the conscious and subconscious mind, you know, when, when we're, when we're kind of keeping secrets from ourselves, and then we're betraying ourselves in some ways, there's, there's this lack of integration between this objective and subjective mind. And when, when ayahuasca goes in there, it just, she just exposes like all that stuff that you've been right. you're repressing right, right. and all that, all that funny storyline you've been telling yourself about who you think you are, all that stuff just gets exposed. And then, yeah. and then you reintegrate as a whole person. And then what happens is, is your mind becomes much more powerful at connecting with other people's minds. And right. then that moment when you just asked for it in the deepest sense, like, like your subconscious mind became a, like your conscious mind became aware of your subconscious, like, Hey, I haven't even smoked weed. And then boom, <laughs> it's like, it's like you asked for it, it that right. right there. Right. Yeah. And I think it's important too, you know, to mention, you know, after I did the ayahuasca to me, it was like, it, like I said, I felt, pure and clean inside it was like i got a clean slate right yes but you have to work at it you know i i i remember you telling me specifically like you know not that there's like a timeline of days or anything but it was kind of like you know it takes so many days to form a new habit right so it was kind of like you know instead of doing some of the other things i was doing with my free time i remember i started hiking i added i would train in the morning i would train at night and then I started doing hikes in the middle of the day up, uh, was it Runyon Canyon mm -hmm. <laughs> that we used to go to all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was like, you know, you had to kind of, it gave you a clean slate, but it gave you the ability to like start fresh and, you know, introduce new, better things in your life instead of just going back to, to, to everything, you know, from the past. And, you know, I, I remember too, when I came back, I was seeing a therapist, I had been seeing a therapist, different therapist for over a decade already. And, you know, they had me on every prescription pill under the sun. You name it. You name it. I was on it. I was on 3,600 milligrams of lithium a day, year after year, back in my, in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember calling my therapist and I was just doing amazing. And she was scared. I mean, she was scared. She was like, Matt, you don't sound good. You sound manic. You know, and I, she's like, why didn't you tell me you were going to go do this? You didn't tell me da, 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 da. And I said, listen, I'll talk to you once a week until I convince you that this is me. This is actually the real me. Right. Yes. And man, it was probably like maybe five or six weeks where I was just always at that consistent, just positive, just spiritually positive, everything, just the energy coming off me, you know, into mm. where she just like taken back like wow you 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 weren't manic you this is just really who you are and i told and i told her i said you gotta look into this ayahuasca you got all these doctors throwing prescriptions down people's throats that are really just um calcifying your pineal gland because that's when that's what's in a lot of the pharmaceutical pills and here was something that was natural 
that was like doing 20 years of talk therapy in a day, basically. Right. Yeah. And, and just re in remapping your brain, the right. pathways in your brain right. that control your habits and your compulsions and impulses. Yes. You're just yes. remapping everything. It, it's just like, I, I remember it was the, one of the only Chris, I think it might be the only Christmas. I didn't see my family. I stayed in LA and I remember going to, I forget the grocery store on the corner, but I grocery store and I had like 46 bucks in my account, man. That's it. You know, even with all the stuff that I had done, which should be a reminder for people that are trying to get in the fitness industry that they think they're just going to make millions of dollars by being on a cover. That's not the case. Um, I, uh, I spent like 42 out of the $46 I had and I bought chicken and water and biscuits. And I just went around Hollywood, you know, giving out to home, there's homeless people everywhere, obviously in Hollywood. And I just remember feeling so good and, and not just to give them food and run away, but to just sit with them and talk to them, you know, mm. depending upon how they were you know basically because i know some of the people there i know like the one guy tried to talk to for a while and he was having an episode and i was just like man i i don't know what to do i'm not qualified to handle someone just tried to talk to people um because i would see people give people food and stuff like that and it's like yeah that's really nice and everything but what those people want more than anything is just to feel human they want someone to sit down and talk to them and say hey you know, what happened or how's your day going or tell me about your life, man. You know, exactly. Um, it just really made me feel so much closer to, to just every, everybody and anybody. And it also, I feel like it opened me up a lot more. Like I was already able to read energy off people before that. But after that, it was kind of like the same with the manifestation, right? Mm. It was like something that you almost had to be careful with because in LA, there's a lot of broken people. And if you let, like if you're an empath and you let that energy come in, it'll affect you. You know. Well, the, well, that was really that's really the Christian in you, and that's that's really one of the key messages of Christ's mission on the planet is, you know, he especially if you read like uh, lately I've been reading like Luke, and uh, you know he Jesus entered into uh, this host's home who was providing dinner for him. And this host was, you know, some well-to-do individual who had heard right. that Jesus was, you know, this, you know, prophetical healer and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, then this, I guess this, um, this kind of homeless prostitute was, you know, was seeking solace with Jesus and she entered into the dwelling and, and, uh, you know, she ended up anointing Jesus's feet with, with oil and when cleaning them with her Hey, cleaning her his feet with her with her hair and the guy the you know the host was like doesn't he know that this is the most unclean woman in the city and right. he basically he basically said you know hey like like i don't deny that she is who she is but did you as the host did you clean my feet did you clean you know did you anoint right. me did you do all these things right. no it's like it's like who are you to judge like this is what she can offer Right. You know, right. and she was healed by that action. And I think I think that's similar to to your outreach in the city and be and just going, I'm not going to look at other human beings as untouchable. I mean, that's the whole right. agenda right now with COVID is like right. to treat each other as if we're untouchable. Right. And so that's that is a really good thing that you did, Matt. So so at that point, we're like, OK, where does because you've been 
in a relationship now for how long? Oh, almost seven years now. So seven years. So, so now we're talking post ayahuasca and how your life kind of radically changed, right? You had, you got opportunities to train like A-list celebrities. Yeah. uh, You partnered up with, uh, you were part of the team of the Lynx team, which was a very profitable venture for everyone involved there. And then you met Heather yeah. And then you got your hip done, replaced, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, then, I mean, yeah. So within, let's say, what, like a year, 18 months time, everything just transformed, right? Oh, everything changed. Everything changed. Everything. Yeah. Everything changed. Basically, what happened was my roommate <laughs> at the time, he, for three months, was taking my rent money and not paying rent with it. Oh, that's nice. And he was just like... <laughs> And instead of just, and we had been roommates for years already. So I don't know why he just didn't come to me and say, Hey, I can't make rent. And then we could have made other arrangements, right? We could have, we could have made something happen, but he didn't tell me, kept taking the money. And then I come home from the gym one day and we got an eviction notice. You got 10 days to get out. And I, and at that time too, my hip was just out it, on its last leg. I kept being shot up with cortisone shots, cortisol and, you know, and stuff like that. But I basically put my stuff in storage in Hollywood. I came back to Arizona. I clicked uh, at the time. I didn't even have insurance, so I quick grabbed some uh, insurance. I made a lot of phone calls, did a lot of research to find out, you know, who was the best of the best to do this hip. And I found Dr. Jimmy Chow, who who uh, did a new procedure. It was a new procedure back then. It's called the Super Path uh, for hips. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I reconnected with Heather, who I you know knew of in high school. And yeah, I mean, I, me and Heather were together when I got the call and I was, I got to train an A-list actor for, for a little while. And we flew all over the world basically. And it's he had a G6 and got to train him and, you know, got to, got to rub shoulders with some billionaires, and, <laughs> which was just eye-opening to me. It's a sure. whole, whole different level, a whole different level. Um, just my life changed so much. And, you know, I do, I'll take you back a little bit. I remember before I left Hollywood, Right before I left, I remember crying in the kitchen. I had this moment with God and I was crying in the kitchen. And I remember having this feeling inside of me, like I could ask God for anything. I could ask him for anything. And I knew I was going to receive it. I just knew. I just knew. And I asked God, I said, you know, in Jesus Christ's name, you know, and I'm saying all I want is someone to love me as much as I love them. And then it wasn't three months I met Heather. Wow. And it was just like, it was just absolutely incredible. You know, Um, just, you know, looking back, it's like, that's what I wanted in my life more than anything, more than a car, more than a house, more than money. You know, it's like, I just want someone that's going to love me. I love to give you know, and I just want someone that's going to love me just as much as I love them. And then here randomly at a show and, you know, we uh, ended up having the four and a half hour talk at Starbucks a couple days later. And man, that was it. (laughs) That was it. Good, good. Yeah. I was so happy to see that happen. And, uh, you know, so happy that you guys have just kept this healthy relationship going and that everything has changed now. We did have, you know, some recent stuff that we were concerned about. So, so tell me about like, you know, this, do you believe that you're, you know, you have a current health thing that you've been dealing with was, was this in any way, do you think this was caused by 
the demands of the sport or or is this pure speculation on my on my part? Well, I mean, the doctors, every doctor I've been to so far has told me it's I've always had it. I've okay. always had it. Um, but I I mean, just being me, I'm just like, eh, I don't know. You know, maybe that's true. I, you know, but I also, you know, I hit it hard and heavy for 20 years. And, you know, basically what happened, I'll, I'll just re- recap the year here real quick. Um, I got a, I got a fever and I had that fever for 10 weeks and I had went to the doctor, stuff like that. And nobody could really figure out what was going on. And at the same time, my hip went out. Basically, I strained my hip and I could not walk uh, at all. <laughs> mm. And we thought that maybe my hip was infected. Somehow my hip got infected, right? Well, we come to find out, I got a phone call from my one doctor who had done some blood work and he called me. Uh, it was about 10 weeks in and he said, Matt, you need to get to the hospital immediately. And that's where we found out that I had endocarditis, right? I had a heart infection. And because the heart infection had gone on, went on so long without us discovering it, it created this real big, what they call a veggie, real big veggie grew on my valve, the mitral valve. Mm-hmm. And because of that, now, yeah, I have a, I have a leak. I have a, a pretty decent leak going in my heart, but it was basically, I had to do a pick line, had to do a pick line. I don't know if people know what that is, but it's basically a tube that goes in your vein, in your arm, and it runs and goes directly into your heart. And you have to be very, very, very careful not to get any bacteria or germs or anything on that because you'll, you'll literally kill you. I mean, I almost died from this. I almost died on my own couch out here. My parents were um, staying with me and Heather. Heather was working like 24 seven to keep up with everything. Cause I wasn't able to work at all. And I just laid on the couch having these fevers week after week. I just, I lost, uh, I was down to like 140 and I couldn't eat. And it was a really, really scary time, but I got out of the hospital from that. And I had to do this pick line for six weeks and that went good. I got done with that. And then a couple weeks later, I got costochondritis, which if you're not familiar with that, it's basically a inflammation of your sternum. And it is extremely painful because even if you don't move, you're still breathing. Right. So every breath was like a heart attack. So then it brought confu- mm. brought more confusion into the situation. Right. Because then we thought I was having a heart attack. Well, that lasted for a week where I had to lay flat on my back for a week. Couldn't really move. Then I was up. I went up to my parents to stay with my parents for a weekend. I wake up. I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know where. I didn't know anything. They, I, I talked to my dad for probably an hour. I just kept saying, I'm really confused, dad. I'm really confused. And he's like, you don't remember you driving up here. You don't remember. You just bought a Jeep. It's sitting in the garage in Chandler. I was like, I don't remember anything. What's going on? So they were, parents were very scared. It took me to the hospital I spent like five more days in the hospital and that's when I was probably at my most scared because we didn't know if I had had a stroke or an aneurysm. We didn't, we didn't know what was going on. And still to this day, they don't know why, but I had amnesia for like 48 hours to the point where they asked me what year it was. I didn't even know what year it was, you know? Hmm. Um, And uh, then of course I go back uh, to my heart doctor. And then they tell me, Oh, by the way, your leak went from moderate to severe. You need to have open heart surgery 
real quick. And they started giving me all these lists of surgeons. And I just was like getting hit by a bat, man. I was like, wait, what? I just, I sat in my Jeep and cried for 30 minutes. And I thought, man, what has happened to my life? What, you know, I was on the top of the mountain. What, what happened? Right, you know? right. Yeah. There's and, a hardcore series oh, of very, very like gut punching right, situations. Right. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, remember, I just kept repeating the same things to everyone around me. I just want to be outside shooting my bow. Like, I just wanted to live more. I thought I was going to die real soon, you know, and I just thought, well, this is it. And I just want to spend as much time outside as I can and with my family and with Heather, you know, and stuff like that. But I ended up going and getting a second opinion. And that's where they said, hey, you, you got a you got a pretty good leak here, but that might be five or 10 years before we really got to go in there and do something about it. And of course, at the same time, my hip went out again. And I couldn't get the hip surgery until I got clearance for the heart. Well, I ended up finally getting clearance for the heart. And then I just had my hip surgery uh, November 18th. Uh, so it's about a month ago I had the hip surgery. And it's a pretty long rehab. I got two more months left of rehab. They, uh, they cut my uh, iliac psoas, my hip flexor. They cut it to lengthen it. Um, because even after all the years and years and years of physical therapy, there was literally nothing that could help it except for another surgery. So I just got out of that surgery. So it's pretty much been on death's doorstep a couple times this year alone. Mm. Um, and then like obviously all the, all the crazy experiences I had when I was younger too. So it really humbled me. And just after, you know, my last trip getting back from the hospital, one of my friends was here and, uh, and me and Heather were all talking and he's like, man, everything in your life just keeps getting ripped away from you. And I'm like, yeah, it does. But they're now at my age. Now the wisdom that I have, I'm just like, yeah, that means other stuff's going to start opening. Cause these, 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 these days are closing, right? These doors are closing sure. and other stuff's going to start opening. And it really grounded me, humbled me again. You know, you just keep getting humbled over and over um, to really, what really matters, what really matters in your life. And, you know, it's your health and it's your heart, man. It's your relationships. It's, it's Heather, you know, it's friends like you, right. It's the, it's, it's the love and the relationships and uh, your faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's, that's all that really matters. Like, uh -huh. you know, you could take anything away from me. It's like when you came to see me last time I saw you and I, I said, dude, I love, I love my Jeep. It's my dream Jeep. I've wanted one my whole life like this and you could take it from me and I, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I'd be like, okay. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know, you're so solidly grounded now in what true richness is. And, you know, let's be frank, you know, there's a lot of people out there right now that, you know, they can't relate to the hardships and the greatness that you've experienced right. in your life. And they, they may never, but on some personal level, we all try to look at something bigger than ourselves um, to motivate us to get somewhere in life. And then like for you, especially you were an Olympian and then you get there and you realize like, you know, like I'm like Arnold, I'm like all these guys. And you were like, like, like Arnold's not cool. <laughs> He's not really a no, cool person. No, He's no, not really a good guy no, at all. No. I, I remember doing I remember doing another podcast with a with a big name in the competitive industry and they 
they asked me that and they, you know, and I said, you know what, my, my dad is a bigger, way bigger role model. And, in my life because he raised four kids and everybody in my family is an amazing person. They're all grounded and humble and they love their families and they work hard. And, you know, I look at Arnold and I just remember he, he didn't say much cause he was just thinking, I can't believe Matt's saying this about Arnold, but I was just like, you know, look back at Arnold. And to me, he had a great physique at one time. There's no doubt about that. He worked hard. He had a great physique at one time. But when you learn the truth about Arnold, you know, and a lot of that came out with his illegitimate children and stuff like that, where he's cheating on his wife in the room next door with the maid. And, you know, and I, when I was in Hollywood, I heard many other stories when I was training at the Mecca about Arnold that were just quite frankly disturbing. And I was like, man, this guy's no role model. I don't want to be like him. Are right. you kidding me? That's of course. No way, man. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. I don't know what it is, what happens, but there's, um, there's, uh, when an immigrant comes to this country, right. And they achieve all of this greatness that America has to offer someone right. who strives to be their best. And then they take a political office. Right. And then right. they end up saying something like, screw your freedom. I'm like, wait a second, bro. Yeah. You, the yeah. only got all of your success is the freedoms that you're offered in this country so um, that's right yeah that's, that's when right. it that's when it broke my heart that broke that broke my heart because oh, i was like you, yeah. you're, you're clearly not the same person that you were when you no. were pre- appreciative of all the benefits of being no, an american no i i had lost no. all my respect for arnold well before that you know right when he came out and said you know screw your freedom you know i was just like <laughs> no man screw you bro yeah you know? exactly and i and exactly. i and i will say this i i, I will say this um you know, when I was hearing all these stories about him when I lived in L.A., the one thing I kept thinking that was so odd to me was and I ne- and I never knew the Weeders. You know, I, I didn't know them at all. I never did. They were before my time when I was there and everything like that. But I just started thinking, why would a grown man go to other countries and bring boys back that were 13 years old? Right. Cause that's mm. what he did. He brought Arnold and he brought Franco, who were like 13 at the time. And it just, when you think about that, just logically think about that, it's very strange to me. Um, and then when you hear all the stories, it all kind of makes sense. You're kind of like, oh, okay. There's some, there's some weirdness going on. Here. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. Once, you know, if you got to step on everybody to get to the top, do you really want to be at the top? Right. Um, you know, right. when you realize that the top is really just the bottom of uh, right (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy yeah i mean the the guy the homeless guy in the streets winning way more than arnold was at the top and and, and we have to when we have to answer to the big guy upstairs you know uh, that homeless guy is going to be on top of the mountain and arnold's going to be way down there where i was when i was doing ayahuasca most likely (laughs) that that is that is the most critical thing that i think i've learned in the past month or so what i'm doing uh ketamine therapy and stuff and and i listened to this guy who was a stanford researcher for 20 years who did remote viewing um and he's got a tedx on it and he talks about how the more you try to hide something in the astral plane, in the, in the non-physical space, in the 5D, the more when you are in that space, and let's say you want to find something some, some, that somebody's hiding, the more obvious it is in the psychic space. Whereas if you try to hide something in the 3D, 
you can make it very difficult for someone to find. Sure. Um, so it's the exact opposite. Everything is the exact opposite. You know, oh everything. yeah. Oh, and, 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 and so when you think about someone like who appears to have everything under control, all the success, all the money, you know, at least seven out of 10 of those people, their life is in complete chaos. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. 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 So everyone out there that's listening, you know, we live in an artificial reality where people are projecting the exact opposite of what they are in most cases. That's, that's, that's what I wanted to say, David. That's what I wanted to say was, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, and I learn about uh, projecting, and, you know, it's so easy to see. You know what I mean? It's like when people say that when people write things online or they say things to you, it's so easy to see they're projecting. It's like, oh, so you're really just saying the opposite of what you're saying right now. Right. It it just becomes I I don't know. I don't know about you, but it's like the older I've gotten, the easier it is to see. It's like a red flag. You're like, oh, okay, okay. You got some demons there you're you're dealing with. Yeah. Someone someone who says like is constantly, you know, talking about um, inner peace really has no inner peace. Right. You know, Um, you know, all these, you know, self-help coaches that are just trying to tell you in most cases, they're, they're just trying to help them sort out themselves by giving you advice. Right, right, right. You know, it just reminded me too, you know, back, back in the the golden days, if you will, of my life when I was in the gym a lot at my peak, uh, physically, I had a lot of, uh, younger guys come up to me, you know, and I was very well connected in the industry and knew a lot of people and people would come up to me and they'd be like, Hey we saw you in a photo with so-and-so, do you know so-and-so? And And I'm like, yeah. And they're just going on and on, you know, how much they love this person and how great this person is. And I'm thinking, if you really knew how that person was, you would would hate them. You would despise them. They're everything. They're the opposite of everything that you think they are, basically. Um, You know, and that happened quite often. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it it is really incredibly eye opening when you can be a fly on the wall and know the truth about what these people do, and the bold faced lies that they tell to the people that follow them on a constant right. basis. Right. Right. And 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 that's where I, I would I would have to say if I could say this for you as well is that guys like us, um, we have a different set of values in terms of just valuing values. And understanding the true rich richness in life is found in being true to yourself. Like just having full transparency and being a genuine person, an authentic person. Unfortunately, authenticity isn't something that you can kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, here's your six week, you know, training guide to your authentic self. (laughs) Let me me market this, you know, it's like, it's very difficult to try to monetize, you know, telling someone, oh, all that shit that you use to inspire yourself to, you know, work a job, make money and get a sports car and get a house like all that stuff is bullshit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you, you know, if you read what people say on their deathbeds, you know, right. That, that gives you some answers right there on what really matters because those people are running out of time and you're living where you have time. And you just don't, you don't quite think the same, uh, you know, I do now because I've seen death so many, or so many times, um, you know, it really grounds you, but 
Yeah, it's I don't think, you know, once COVID hit in 2020, in March 2020, I remember jumping off the cliff. I just thought, you know, what? I had a lot of clients at the time. And I remember thinking, I'm just going to say what I want to say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to say what I want to say. And I don't care if, who likes it or who doesn't like it. And I mean, Heather's phone was blowing up with phone calls at the time. because they're like, dude, what's going on with Matt? You know, is he okay? And she's like, he's the best he's ever been. You know, right. it was just, it was just like, I just said what I wanted when I wanted to who I wanted. And I, that's how I've been ever since. And it's such a freeing to not care what other people think, to not sure. worry about if I say this, am I going to lose this sponsorship or is this person not going to look up to me anymore? Well, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. And if they don't like it, then they never really liked who I was to begin with. Isn't that interesting how you started making, and we all do, right? We, so you, you got to the top of the sport and then you realized it wasn't about the merit of your hard work, right? It was about this underground mafia that right. was just like this conspiracy theory, this cabal, if you will, uh, you know, within that industry. And then, you know, you start going, well, you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't just end here. Like that whole, right. oh, that yeah, whole that... narrative just is connected in every facet of what we call this reality that's constructed for us to dwell in. Um, 100%. It's, it's a micro. It, you know what I mean? It's like putting a microscope down to it of one little part of the world and seeing what it really is. And then you zoom out and get an aerial view. And it's the same thing on a mass scale. You know, right. And it's not necessarily, let's say, the governments or the institutions or the governing bodies or the IFBB or whoever it is or right. the or the churches or whatever it is. It's the people's inherent ability or lack of ability, I should say, to have values and integrity and honesty. And so the weakness of humans gets like covered up and they scapegoat organizations like they'll scapegoat the church or they'll scapegoat the government. They'll say the government's corrupt. It's like the government isn't corrupt. The government is us and we're corrupt. Right. It's like, to me, it's an infiltration. It's an infiltration into certain things where it's just a very small amount of people that are tied tied together. And we're, we're literally giving our time of our life to the worst among us. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> no, so down. I, I think it's important to say though, you know, I've thought, I've, I've thought about this a lot and it's like, you know, the average person, which is most, let's just say 99% of people in the whole entire world are good people, man. They're good yes. people with good hearts that just want to raise their family. They want to make memories. They want to, they just want to love and, and they're good genuine people okay so when you have corruption or infiltration of evil in the world you are looking at it through your own eyes and your own heart and you're saying well that can't be true that the people would never do that but you're looking at it through your perception of and you're if you're a good person you're not going to understand it right exactly but if you're that one percent it's that one evil bastard that's seeing it through their lens and that's the way they see it. And that's why the way they are, man, they have no empathy. It's just strictly evil in my opinion, you know? But, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's uh there's definitely a predatory nature 
to those who feel like the majority of good people out there are exploitable and and if they can you know be be the person that comes up with comes up with an idea that allows them to have an edge to exploit this (laughs) huge huge mass group of good people then all of a sudden it's not by their own merits. It's by deception and secrecy yes. and co- coercion yes. and all these dark attributes of, of, yep. of the human persona. Yep. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's when you start creating these secret organizations and these groups of people that go, well, I want, I want in on this. I want to get right. a little piece of this pie. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, evil breeds evil, you know? It certainly does. And, and, it really has to do with knowledge and how, like, let's say, you know, I both have been in agreement, like the meek will inherit the earth, the scriptures say. Right. So it's like the meek are these, you know, upstanding, like people that value values and virtue who just want to each one, teach one, one hand washes the other. Like I'll do for you. I treat one another with the golden rule. And these people, right. they, they believe that, okay, I don't have to operate within those guidelines. And because I don't, I've already identified myself as the other. And right. I can't, and I can't go back to being the good person because if I do that, then I got to give up the goat. And right. so, right. <laughs> right. And so you just create this opposing body of people inside the species, inside the same species and it becomes very attractive when you're able to offer money and power. Oh yeah, it's it's contagious, you know. Yeah. And people see, like we we've said a million times with your with social media and the way the internet is, you're getting a you're getting a highlight reel. That's all you're getting. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And I call it a high lie, a high lie reel. <laughs> That's yeah, what like it that. is. That's pretty yeah. good. I like that. It's a high lie reel because. Yeah. It's just constant fakery. It's the next like uh, jesters, you know, unicorn on a unicycle juggling, whatever I can do. Popularity right. contest. Yeah, and... it's that whole like when I was in LA, it was the whole fake till you make it thing, right? Fake yeah, till you make it. You know uh, that that type of attitude. You know where it's like now I just envision myself the man that I want to be. <laughs> yeah. That's it, and, and you be that man. You know, right. You know, it's like going to a church, right? And a preacher is really trying to lather everybody up to get in the spirit where it's like, dude, if you just hit people with the truth about what we're all facing right now in our lives, there's no greater fire that will inspire hearts and minds than to hit them with the truth and let the, let the word speak for itself. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The the truth is a a lot of times a very hard thing to hear. People do not want to hear the truth, whether it's in their own lives or it's on a, you know, more of like a spiritual level. They just, it's hard to face yourself when you're not happy with yourself. And most people run, right? And what do they do? They do drugs, they do alcohol, they do all these things to run away from it when you really want to confront the fear and let it dissolve, which go, all goes back to ayahuasca, where it's like, once you drink, <laughs> you, right. ain't, you ain't getting away. You're going right. to confront, you're going to confront what, what's, what's, what's going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that is that right there. So, I mean, I can't even believe that we live in a world where we've constructed an alternate reality from the ultimate reality, which is nature. Right. Right. 
and let's say agricultural um, techniques were al- have allowed societies to create cities and sustain populations. And then right. the people that controlled the food got to control the people. And then, of course, right. that created a dependency right. on and not even on the farmers because there's people that own the farmers. So you've created this alternate bubble where these people live in this false sense of security. And now there's a huge, you know, I'm sure there's huge swaths of people that consider themselves to be good people. And they, and and in all, in all practicality, they are good people, right. But they, but they blindly hand over their lives to, you know, these, these malignant corporations and they, they oppose anything from nature. Like, Iowa, oh, you're not going down there to do that crazy, you know, that right. weird jungle right. juice, are you? You're not gonna, you're not gonna drink the Kool Aid down there with that cult, are you? You're not gonna, right. you know. Right. And right. I'm like, how did, how did this get so, uh, you know, out of whack to where, right? Our whole civilization is based on agriculture and right. farming and a relationship with the planet, even, right. even even ourselves and our immune system and just the list could go on and on about this cognitive dissonance between talking about your health and talking about your mental health, talking about how you breathe, like plants give you like breath and they give right. you food, but they don't give you medicine. <laughs> right? right, right, right. right. Well, it, you know, I, I, I saw this the other day and it made so much sense to me. It's so simple. It's like, you know, uh, the powers that be have enough money basically to come up with 7.8 billion vaccines right that's not a problem they can do that easy but they don't have enough money to supply all 7.8 billion people with food um you know and it's and it's not just that you know being being a traditional hunter since i was i killed my first deer with a bow when i was nine years old i've been doing it a long time Mm. and you know there's so many hunting regulations and I get it. You have to have, you know, conservation and animal management and stuff like that. But it's just like, man, you got to jump through. I've, I've been drawn for elk two times in 20 years in Arizona. Wow. And it was just up until this year. I finally killed my first bull elk with, with the recurve, but it took that long, you know? So it's like, we live in a world that's designed to, to want to make you want to go to Wendy's or Burger King or, or whatever. Right. You know, and it's like when you, that's why I love hunting and, and, and everything that has to do with hunting in every capacity, because it's like, you're out there by yourself. You, you, you take an animal's life, which is, which is my least favorite part. I, I don't know of a time that I haven't cried when that has happened. It's just, it's part of what happens when you go hunting, obviously. And I let the animal present itself to me. If I don't have a good shot, I don't force it. You let the animal present itself. You got to know how to skin the animal, how to gut the animal, how to take care of the animal, uh, how to take care of the meat, how to debone it, how to process it. Um, All those things, you know, when you're doing those things and then you sit down at a table with your family and you're eating an elk steak that you were there for every part of the process. You put in the work and the labor for every part of the process, even the parts that aren't fun, even the parts where you're, you know, you're sitting in there pulling the guts out, field dressing it. It's like, that food means so much more to you when you have that experience and knowledge. It really changes the way you look at food mm. and, 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 and restaurants and, and stuff like that. You know? Sure. Just like the burden of like the hum- being 
uh, humbled, right? When you get things taken from you in life or when you lose really big in life, right? It creates this sense of gratitude for what you do have. Right. The blind consumer in the supermarket has little or no gratitude for for the life that was once that food that they're eating. No, because they don't want to think about it and they don't want to look at it. And, and, and I've had people, you know, write me, how could you do, how could you kill this innocent animal, Matt? How could you do this? How could you do that? And I just simply say, do you eat meat? Oh, well, yeah. Well, mine was killed with uh, an arrow and a broadhead that the animal never felt. Double lung goes right through it. It stands there. It doesn't, it doesn't even know what happened. It's like when you cut yourself with a razor and you don't feel the pain until you see the blood. Would you rather have something like that or would you rather have something where this animal standing in line, stressing, 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 watching all its family die, right? Yes. It's people just don't think about it. They're just, um, well, they're very brainwashed <laughs> in a lot of ways. Exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a loss of connection and, so, and, and people in general, when you're just embedded in society and then you're just kind of obsessed with these social issues, mm-hmm. you, you, they, in most cases, they don't really start with themselves and go, well, how connected am I to, you know, reducing the carbon footprint or right. providing food for my family? Like, how close am I to being connected to the way things truly should be, the way life was intended to be lived. Right, right, you know? right, right. I mean, which brings me to, let's say the grid goes out. Grid goes out, okay? Within probably 24 to 36 hours, every grocery store is going to be empty. Yep. And what are people going to, like in the city of Phoenix, what's going to happen? You're not going to have AC. <laughs> it's going to be 130 degrees in your house. You're not going to have any food. People are just so removed from nature so removed from the truth um it's it's sad it's really just sad you know because everybody that i see complaining about problems and i'll even catch myself i'm sure you probably catch yourself sometimes not to speak for you but it's like we have first world problems these are first world problems you know and again when you're out hunting it brings you a breath i mean when you go out hunting and I'm, i'm hunting out of a tp living out of a tp for three weeks everything's hard. Everything is work. You want to make a fire? Got to go cut down a tree. Then you got to saw it up. Then you got to split the wood. Then you got to keep that going day after day after day. That's just one part. Then you got to find water. You got to find clean water. Got to have clean water. That's a job. Then, I mean, to provide, it's, it's quite incredible really when you're out there experiencing it for yourself, how difficult just living really is, but you don't have the same stress. It's a different type of stress, right? Completely. And as we know, stress is the insidious killer, man. Right. A little bit is good. Too much will kill you. Exactly. So, exactly. So exactly. That, that's a beautiful thing you brought up because, you know, we live in a world where, you know, uh, ergonomics and efficiency, right, is the obsession. Like this technological innovation is really um, what is kind of the metric of a civilization's kind of uh success or you know proficiency like uh, it makes everything easier right it's it's supposed to it's supposed to but but yet how you got innovation and then you have innervation right right and innervation is this concept of that 
you are not going to use some external thing to give you an advantage. You're going to look within and change the way that you look at things. Right. Right. So this is the process that I think really the whole world's going through in terms of, are we going to turn back the clock and, and minimize like our lifestyle and just become very sustainable and simple and grassroots and value values again through in innervation, changing the way we look at what we consider to be problems and going, no, these are opportunities to simplify our life and to take longer to do what we take for granted. Right. That what comes easy to us. Right. Take, take this long road to learn how to do this the right way from the start. So we'll, if we do have it in a convenient way, then we're so much more grateful for it. But if we don't have it, we know how to deal with it either way. Well, it kind of goes back to that whole thing where it's just a cycle. It's just a big cycle where we, I mean, we've lived in easy times for a while now. If Mm -hmm. I want something, I go on my phone and it's at my doorstep. We live in easy times. And easy times create weak men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hard times, like if you're out there, like if you were out there 100 years ago living in the wild, you're a tough bastard. You might only live to be 40 or 30, you know, but yeah. you're tough because life was hard. And now everything is so, you know, in a lot of, like you're saying, in a lot of ways, it's easier. In a lot of ways, it's more stressful, right? But it's uh, just incredible, really, when you stop and think about it. Yeah, I mean, we're we're literally at this moment in this time of just the human species where we're like, look, are we going to take this leap where it means giving the keys up to our own home, meaning our bodies? Right. And or or are we going to, you know, cut the cord from this tit that we've been feeding off of that we've all been just thinking that this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to give away our lives and never really discover who we are by our own personal sovereignty, our own agency being free. Right. Freedom freedom is such a huge responsibility. Yeah. It it really is. It's it. And and to think like the daunting thing of like living off the grid. Oh my God. Like how, how do people do it? That blows my mind. Right. Right. You know, because it's so appealing just to get by and pay taxes and buy a house and just right. and just live because you're like, well, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, that, what just came in my mind was when, when COVID first hit and, and the spring of 2020, basically, there was a two week. Remember, they were like, just two weeks. Just just stay at home just for two weeks. That's all you got to do. Right. I remember mm-hmm. the, our gym was closed and I was able to start going on walks with Heather. And it, that little thing changed my life. Cause I was like, man, Heather, you know how long it's been since I've seen a sunset, you know, how long it's been since we've had like time, you know, while the sun is still up to like talk and walk and just, you know, just be, you know? And what I noticed was at that time, uh, you know, I'm here in Chandler, Arizona, every, every time we went on a walk, it was nothing but families out. It was the most amazing, beautiful thing I have seen. Just families riding their bikes, walking, the whole family, you know? Mm. And it was like, wow, man. It's like, it, it changed me again, 
you know, and, and I think that it changed a lot of people, but I think as time went on and then, you know, you get back to, you get back to the grind of things, if you will, you know, it kind of changes, but I'll never forget just seeing all those families out and everybody just waving and saying hi. And I was thinking, this is, this is what the world's supposed to be like. Not everybody's not supposed to be stressed out, cooped up in their office. 10 12 hours a day missing lunch you got an angry boss you're stressed out like that's not that's not life all all also you can what have a bigger house and a better car it's just literally doing nothing but feeding your own ego it's not doing anything else but that right you know um and i tried to keep that with me and i have i mean as far as like what since when covid started to now just appreciating just those it's like me and heather we go on a walk almost every single night with teddy we take him on a walk and it's I look forward to that. It's our it's our time together every night, you know. Yeah. Family is and that's the thing. It's like the American family right now is just there's a there's this critical decision being made where it's like, you know, do I spend uh you know this money every month for this college fund? And then, you know, my, my kid goes to college and it's like, well, you know, they're not even really sure what they want to do. And then right. you're, you're dropping fifty to a hundred K on education. That may even be obsolete once they graduate because of the right. way the way the market's right. changing instantly. Well, it yeah, I mean it's that, and then you have a lot of a lot of people where their parents pay for them to go to college, and like you said, they don't even know what they want to do, and they're not looking at it serious. They're just looking at hey, I got four years to make friends, party, and you know, and 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 when when it's over, I'll, I'll figure it out. A lot of people are like that, and a lot of people go for degrees that are meaningless honestly, mm. just to yeah. have that, just to have that experience, mm-hmm. you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be like Matt Krishner and David Moore and I'm going to drop out of college and be a big fitness <laughs> dude and then do <laughs> ayahuasca and make podcasts. <laughs> hey, it's working out pretty good for us, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. At least, at least we're alive and we can laugh about it, man, because it's been yeah. one hell of a journey so far. It's and we're a ride. Dude. And we're halfway through pretty much. So it's right. like, damn, man, you know, uh, I know, I know. And we're, you know, being on the back nine and like talking about, you know, what's in store for us and these different chapters in our lives, you know, it brings, you know, this kind of reflective, retrospective look on, you know, obviously I don't think you and I would have changed anything. I think we, we live the life we're supposed to live because we're both believers in, in Jesus Christ. And we both right. know that, that Christ is going to provide an opportunity for us and allow the future of our purpose to you know unfold. And all we have to do is just when the door is knocking, we just have to open that up and got to, you got to open the door. And like, you know, it's like, like I've said before, you know, there's your plan and there's God's plan. And that's where a lot, I think, at least for me back in the day, it's where you're, you're pushing so hard for what you want. And you're like, Hey, these, these are good things. These are, these are okay things. And you're pushing so hard and all of a sudden everything start you start losing everything. Everything gets sucked out of your life, you know? And you're just like, Hey, what's going on here? Well, you're on, you're on, it's God's purpose. Right. And then at least where I'm at now, you can look back and be like, man, this all makes sense, you know, but there's your plan and there's God's plan and they're not always the same. So a lot of times when stuff starts getting ripped out of your life, it's meant to be, you're meant to be exactly where you are. Isn't that beautiful? I think brother, I think we'll, we'll, we'll end it with that, my friend.
All right. You brought it right back to the end. All right, everybody. So thanks for uh, joining the Get Your Shift Straight podcast. Before we go, Matt, tell everybody how they can reach you and what you got going on right now business-wise that they can connect with. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the easiest way to reach me is on Facebook or Instagram. I'm pretty censored on there. But if you type in my full name, at Matt Christianer, you'll find me on there. Uh, Yeah, I have a business partner here in the Valley. We've been working... He's been jumping through a lot of legal hula hoops to get everything done here in Arizona, but we're getting a lab set up and we're going to be doing a THC performance uh, product. And we're also going to be doing a CBD uh, recovery product as well. And I know there's a lot of CBD products out there and stuff like that. However, our main goal is going to be the THC and what you can really do uh, performance and training wise, if utilized correctly. Ah, very good. So there'll be some support along with the supplementation to kind of enhance the whole experience, much like set and setting enhances like a uh, psychedelic, right? Correct. Correct. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thanks again, Matt, for joining us and we appreciate all your listeners. Please like and share the podcast with as many people as you can and drop some comments and let us know what you liked. If you have any questions for Matt and also, Hey, if you want to hear from someone, anybody, just drop their name in some of the comments and let me know, and I'll do my best to contact them and have them on the show. All right, guys. Talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.